could they do this to me? We used to be best friends. I don't deserve this. He gave up everything. He wasted it all. I wish he never came back. What is up, Northridge Church? Hopefully everybody's doing well. You had a fantastic weekend. Welcome home and welcome to Northridge Church. No matter where you're joining us from, whether it's our online campus, our Rochester, our Webster campus, we want to just say welcome to Northridge Church. Thanks for being here. If you got your Bibles, Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be. I'd encourage you to grab your device or grab your Bible and turn there as we follow along. And man, three services. I'm just getting in the groove. I don't know about you. Y'all slept in. I was here early. That's not funny to me, okay? Just so you know. Anyway, Luke chapter 15, we've, we've kind of been planted here for the last two weeks in a, a series called A Tale of Two Brothers. And we've been looking at this story called The Prodigal Sons. We've often missed that, that there's two sons in this story. And in the context of Luke 15, Jesus is actually teaching an audience that is pretty polar opposite. You've got people pagans far from God who who don't know much about Jesus, who don't live like Jesus, but man, were they attracted to Jesus. And then on the opposite side of, of that audience is the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They knew what Jesus had to say, but their hearts were so far from God that they're actually judging the very other group of people there, the sinners, and so Jesus, as he, he tells three stories in Luke 15, he tries to draw people in who are far from God while correcting and rebuking the religious attitudes. And the third story he tells is the prodigal son where there's two brothers. The youngest one chooses to alienate himself from the family altogether. He takes his inheritance early, disrespects his dad, and he leaves town and he goes and he parties it up. He lives this, this wild lifestyle until he hits rock bottom where he realizes all his money's gone and all of his friends are. And so he, he convinces himself in his head that he's actually better off being a servant in his father's house than living the life he is. So he comes home. And when his dad sees him coming home, he runs to him and, and, and he, he celebrates the fact that his son has returned. He throws this huge party. The problem is, is the older son isn't ready to party for the younger son. He's wondering why his dad had never celebrated him and why he would be celebrating this rebellious son of his. And he never steps foot into the story, into the party. And, and what, what we've wrestled through in this series so far is, which son do you relate to most? I mean, honestly, maybe you, you, you alienate yourself from God through religion or rebellion. I wonder which one it is. And at some level, probably all of us can relate to a little bit of both brothers where we've been rebellious and we've been religious at times. And both of those things have alienated us from God. And, and what's so fascinating about these two brothers is they take completely different paths, routes, but they end up in the same place, far from their dad. And today we're going to shift gears. As we bring this series to a close, we're going to stop zooming in on the brothers' lives, and we're actually going to look at the third character in the story, the father, and how he responds to his 
his son's choices. And we're going to start with the rebellious son. Remember, he goes off and he squanders his inheritance and he decides to come home. And this is the first interaction we see with his dad as he comes home. It says this in verse 20. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And we love this part of the story, right? Because it's, it's the restoration process taking place. It's reconciliation between a rebellious son and his father. It's beautiful. We love it. And what I want us to see this morning is how the father responds to this reckless and rebellious son. And I want you to see two, I think, really important things that the father chooses to do with his son that has walked away and alienated himself from his dad. The first thing we see is his dad giving his son grace. The father chooses in this moment in his son's life to pour over him this very word called grace. And if you don't know what grace is, it's a gift that somebody gives you that you don't deserve or you couldn't earn, but they choose to give it to you freely. And that's exactly what this dad does. You you notice in the text, nowhere does it suggest that this father is like, I told you so, son. I told you if you you went on this lifestyle, this path of self-discovery, this is where you would be. I mean, I I predicted it before you left. Told you so. Nowhere does his father make him feel bad about his choices. No, he pours grace over him, and that's convicting for me. That, that, That response hits me hard because I'm not sure it would be my response to my kids if they chose that path. I mean, I had to think about, like, man, if, if Malachi or Ruby Kate or Joel decided to live this lifestyle when they get older and they chose to come back, would this be my first response of grace? I mean, my kids know I, I'm a fantastic lecturer. <laughs> I'm really good at lecturing them over and over and over again. I'm going to get it from my dad because he used to lecture me. I'm like, Dad, I've heard it three times. Can you please stop? But his dad chooses to to take a different route, probably a route that most of us wouldn't take, where he gives grace to his rebellious son. And grace changes the game. Grace has has changed me, and it's probably changed you. I mean, have you ever experienced the the freedom that grace allows in your life? I remember when I was in, in college. It was my senior year of college. I was newlywed with my wife, and I worked at, at a corporation called Annie Ann's Pretzels. Y'all haven't ever had an Annie Ann's pretzel? Let's just thank the Lord for Annie Ann's for a second. Can you imagine a job where I had unlimited access to however many cinnamon sugar pretzels I wanted? (laughs) It probably wasn't the best thing for my marriage as I, I dived in, but I was a leasing intern for this corporation, and my whole job was to find franchisees, get them excited about investing hundreds of thousands of dollars into locations for Annie Ann's. And so this one time, I I get this phone call from a potential franchisee, and he's already excited. He's already ready to commit the funds. He's got his location, and all I have to do is basically keep him excited. 
And so we're talking, he's pumped, he's excited, and then all of a sudden he begins to ask questions. Questions that I probably should have never tried to answer. I should have given him some, somebody else who knew what they were talking about, but I thought I owed it to this guy. Like he's excited, I need to keep this excitement, I need to answer his questions. And through the process of me answering his questions, I take a guy who's really excited to making him angry and frustrated and not willing to pour money into this company. I ruined it. And to make matters worse, that franchisee, potential franchisee, called my boss two days later and told him how good of a job I did. So a week later, my boss sets up a meeting with me, and I'm like, oh, here it is. Like, I, I'm getting ready to be fired from my job, and I have no defense. Like, I, I should be fired. So I walk into this meeting with my head down, and I'm just waiting for the news. Like, let's just get it over with quickly. I'll go home and tell my wife I blew it. And I remember when I went into my boss's office, she looked at me and she said, hey, Drew, I want you to know that everybody in this company has been in your shoes. Everybody has blown it once or even twice. And all I want you to do is to learn from this experience and, make you, and allow it to make you better as you move forward in this company. And man, that burden that I carried into that office, through her grace, it just freed me. And it changed. It changed a lot of things. It changed the way I viewed that company. It changed the way that I worked for them. It changed the way I viewed my boss. Because grace changes people. It's probably the reason why you are here today, maybe, is because the grace of God has changed you. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Isn't that the truth today? The very reason I am what I am, the, the man or, or, or the woman or the, the husband or the spouse, the, the wife, the grandparent that you are today is because of the grace of God poured over on your life? That's what Paul says. He's, I am what I am because of God's grace. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace changes the game. And, and probably that's why this father responds to his rebellious son with grace. And what I find so interesting is the very grace that God has given Christians over and over again is the same grace that we very rarely give to others. Maybe that's why we're so divided in our country today and in our communities is because Christians have forgotten to give the grace that this father gives to his son. We should be a, 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 a people just like this father who have experienced the grace of God and willing to give it to other people. And so the first thing this father does is he gives him grace, but the second thing he chooses to do as he responds to his rebellious son is he chooses to party. He says, hey, let's, let's throw a feast. Hey, my son is home. Grab uh, the best robe. Grab some sandals. Clean them up a little bit because my son is home. He says, go grab some T-bones. Get some filet mignon or some prime rib or whatever you like because we're going to party because something miraculous has happened. My son who was lost is now found. My son who was dead is now alive. And that's worth celebrating. And what this, this story does is it actually gives you and I, as followers of Christ, a window into what happens in heaven when someone crosses the line of faith for the first time. Do you realize that when someone repents from their sins and steps into a relationship with Jesus, all of heaven throws a dynamic celebration? They go crazy in heaven because it's a miracle. In fact, in this chapter, Jesus gives us a window into that. In Luke chapter 15, verse 7, he says this, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 
Now remember, remember who Jesus is talking to. Can you imagine how the crowd that day heard that verse? Think about all the people who are far from God but like Jesus. They didn't know much about God, but they were attracted to Jesus. Can you imagine those words like, hey, there's a party in heaven when you choose to follow Jesus? How inviting that was for them into the family of God. But yet, can you imagine all the religious people there listening were appalled that Jesus would say that. Wait, wait, hold on a second. You're going to celebrate them more than us? How could you, Jesus? It would have shocked the religious people. And so this, this father, he, he gives his son grace and he parties with him. He's like, my, my son has come home, but there's a problem. The whole family is partying except one person. It's the older brother. Where is he? He's, he's out in the fields doing what he always does, living this obedient lifestyle to his father, tending the flocks and the herd and the crops. And he all of a sudden hears music and dancing and he asks the servant, why are we celebrating? Why is there a party in our house? And the servant says, hey, your, your brother's home. Your brother's home and your dad is elated. They're throwing a party. And this older brother, instead of going into the party, he refuses. He refuses to celebrate the reconciliation that's happening in his brother's life. And so guess what has to happen? The father has to leave the party and go out to his older brother. We pick it up in verse 28. It says, so his father went out and pleaded with him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And yet again, here this father comes out to the older brother and he shows us two things, two ways he responds to this religious brother that look a little bit different. The first thing we see from this father is he begs his son to come to the party. He pleads with him. He says, son, you got to come in. Let go of your bitterness. Let go of your, your, your self-righteousness. Let go of your resentment and come celebrate what God is doing in your younger brother's life. Please, let it go. But the older brother won't. Interesting, right? This is the very first time that the older brother disobeys his dad. The very thing that he needs is to forgive, to bring him in closer relationship with his dad. And right here, for some reason, this older brother who chose to obey his father all the time chooses to rebel, rebel against him. He won't come into the party, and so his dad begs him. And you can see this father's heart just breaking. Come on, son, come on. And, and what I love is what happens next is, is not only does he beg him to come to the party, but he explains to his son why they're celebrating. He says, Bud, you got to understand, when your brother left, I never thought he'd be back. When your brother left, I thought he was dead to our family. But guess what? What was dead is now alive, and what is lost is now found. How could we not celebrate, son? And yet this older brother refuses to go into the party. And I love what Keller says. He says, the father also goes out to the angry, resentful elder brother, begging him to come into the feast. It shows that even in, in the most religious and moral people need the in initiating grace of God, that they are just as lost, and it shows there is hope, yes, even for a Pharisee. Yet in the story, the elder brother gets not a harsh condemnation, but a loving plea to turn from his anger and self-righteousness. And as we look at the father responding to both of his sons, we, we see the same thing. 
It didn't matter to the dad where, their, where his sons found themselves. It didn't matter if they chose rebellion or, or religion that has alienated him. All this dad wants is to be back in a close relationship with his son. You see, no matter the condition the father found his sons in, he loved them anyway. He expresses love to them. In fact, his love pursued after his sons. You see it in both stories, right? We only picture this, this, this imagery of the, 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 the father running to the rebellious son. Like we have that like ingrained to, into our head in this story. But do you realize that just as much as the, the father ran to the rebellious son, he did the same thing for his older son. He had to leave the celebration and the party and pursue the religious person as well. And that was the Father's love. And it's the same for you and I today. When we choose to alienate ourselves, separate us from ourselves from God, whether it's through religion or good deeds or whether it's from rebellion and discovering our own way, it's the same thing that, that gets us back to the Father. It's not anything that we do, but it's everything that God does through his initiating love. In fact, Keller says this. He says, what do we need to escape the shackles of our own particular brand of lostness? The first thing we need is God's initiating love. Notice how the father comes out to each son and expresses love to him. Why? In order to bring him in. When we look at the father, we see no matter the condition, he loved his sons. He wanted to be close to them. And so up to this point, we studied both brothers, the rebellious and the religious. We've looked at the father's response, but yet we're still missing something. There's something bigger happening here that I, I don't think we often ever get to in, in the, the prodigal son, something that we've missed consistently when we read it because we never look at the big picture of Luke chapter 15. Because for the last two weeks, we've been studying just one of the stories, but Jesus tells three to the same audience. And the first two stories that he tells, they, they are very similar. The first story he tells this audience, this opposite audience, he, he tells of a shepherd. And this shepherd has a hundred sheep. He loses one. This one sheep decides to go on its own road and, and he finds himself lost. And what does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99, he pursues the lost one until it's found and brought home again. And the second story he tells is very similar, just different circumstances and different people. He tells of a, a woman who loses a coin. And what does this woman do? She tears up her house, the cushions, everything to find the lost coin. She pursues it until she finds it, until it's restored to its rightful place. And so the first two stories, Jesus creates this pattern. Something is lost. Someone pursues it until it's found. Now, here's what's shocking about the third story, the prodigal son. That pattern is broken. Why would Jesus break the pattern? Why, as the audience is listening, they're like, okay, we got it, right? Something's lost, someone goes and gets it and brings it home. Something's lost, someone goes and gets it and brings it home, okay? And they hear the prodigal son's story. They hear, okay, the, the, the son is lost, right? He alienates himself from the father, he goes away. But wait a second, no one pursues him. No one goes after the lost thing. Why would Jesus break the pattern? Whose responsibility was it to go after the younger brother? Well, I would suggest, scholars would suggest, Timothy Keller suggests that the older brother should have pursued his younger brother. Jesus didn't break the pattern. The older brother just left his responsibility on the table. 
The very thing that this older brother should have done was not sit there in his bitterness and unforgiveness, but he should have actually been the one. It fell on his shoulders to chase down his younger brother and save him from the path that he was choosing, but yet he doesn't. Why? Why does this older brother choose not to fulfill his, his duties? He's always done it, right? All of his life, he's fulfilled the duties of his job responsibility, but yet here he doesn't. Why? I, I just say two words, the cost. The cost was too great, too high, too steep for this older brother to save his younger brother. Let's dig into the cost. What would have it cost him to actually do this? What would it cost him monetarily? Because he would have had to go on a journey, he would have had to get his supplies around, get a horse or whatever it was to travel to find his brother, locate him. So you're talking about hotel fees, staying at places, maybe buying some information to track him down and bringing him back. This was not a cheap journey for this older brother. It would have cost him monetarily. Secondly, it would have cost the farm. Because if the older brother goes on this week-long journey or this month-long journey to find his other brother, who's going to take care of the farm? Like, that was his job. He took care of the animals and the crops, and the farm would have suffered greatly if he would have chose to leave to get his younger brother. Third, it would have cost this older brother his future. Because, remember, in this culture, if he was to go and get his younger brother and restore him as a son again into his father's household, he would now have to take his inheritance and divide it in two for his younger brother. So it would have cost his dreams and his future. His future would have been divided in half yet again. But then the fourth cost, I think, was the greatest. It would have cost him greatly to just let go of his bitterness, his anger, his resentment towards his younger brother. Maybe you understand that because right now you should probably forgive somebody and you're choosing not to because you're holding on to that. That was his older brother, that greatest cost where he would have actually had to forgive his brother before he went on the journey, and that wasn't something he was willing to do. He was too busy holding on to his bitterness, holding on to his resentment, and it kept him from even thinking about making the journey. And when we look at this story from this angle, when we realize it in, in, from this perspective, the full picture of what Jesus is trying to communicate, it, it tells us something. That the very thing that this older brother didn't do, Jesus did what this older brother wouldn't do. You see, there's something bigger going on in this story because the Bible, every page of the Bible points to one person and one accomplishment. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus telling this story is ultimately pointing to something he's getting ready to do. And that's the very thing that broke the pattern in the story. It's the very thing the older brother wouldn't do. Jesus stepped in and did. Do you realize that while you and I were alienated from God, when we chose in our own volition, when we chose to walk away from God, we're all born in rebellion to God. So I don't care who you are, what you chose, we're all born alienated from God, separated from the Father. But guess what Jesus did? He chased us down. He went after us while we were sinners and saved us and paved a way so we could get back to our Father. In fact, Romans 5, 8 says it more, more beautifully, perfectly. It says, while we were still sinners. Man, we don't understand the gravity of that statement, right? While you and I were running from God, enemies of God, didn't want to have anything to do with God. We're living in a lifestyle that opposed God. You think of everything, the opposite of God, that's who we were. While we were sinners, guess what? God didn't say goodbye, see you later. No, he pursued us, he chased us down, and not only did he pursue us, but he paid the cost that we couldn't pay. He died for us. 
And man, I don't know about you, but I'm dang glad that Jesus was willing to pay the cost that the older brother wouldn't for my life, that he would go after it. And man, when we view this story this way, it actually shows us a full picture of one word. The word is forgiveness. You see, when you study this story and you look at it from the big picture of what Jesus did, that he stepped in and paid a penalty that we couldn't pay. He paid our price. The cost didn't matter to Jesus. It shows us from the younger brother's perspective how free forgiveness is. This is the shocking and amazing thing about the gospel, that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done through the course of your life, how much sin that you have piled up, how much rebellion to God you have chosen, how much disgusting, nasty things that oppose God that you have stepped into. The reality is, is when you turn from your rebellion, when you turn and you look to God, he offers you grace and mercy and forgiveness at zero cost. How amazing is that? Something that you don't deserve, you couldn't earn on your own, but yet Jesus gives it to you absolutely free. That should blow our minds. That, that seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Because we live in a culture, right, where you gotta buy one to get one free. Nothing is really free in our lives, but yet Jesus could offer me forgiveness of my past, my present, and my future, and I don't have to pay for it? Yes. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we are all younger brothers who have rebelled against our father. And do you notice in this story, the father doesn't say to his son, hey, when you pay back your inheritance, then you can be my son. No, the father runs to him and he says, hey, get the best robe and you get the ring on his finger and you put sandals on his feet and you kill the best thing we have because guess what? He's always been my son. And I will offer him grace and forgiveness at no cost to him. That's what Jesus does for us. But yet, although forgiveness is free for us, as we shift perspective and we go to the older brother and we look at his story, what it shows us is the cost of forgiveness. You see, nothing is actually free in life. But the good news for all of us is forgiveness is free to us, but it costs Jesus greatly. Jesus was willing to be beaten and brutalized. He was willing to be mocked and scorned. He was willing to go to a cross and die for you. Even though you didn't love him, you didn't choose him, even though you were walking away from him, he paid that steep price, that cost of forgiveness fell on Jesus' shoulders so you could experience it at no cost. And it's the very thing that this older religious brother wouldn't pay for his younger brother. It's the cost, it was too high. And isn't that so true for our lives sometimes when it comes to following Jesus? Like we wanna follow Jesus, but then we realize the cost? Eh, I don't know. You see, when we look at this story, we, we see how great the gospel is. And we see Jesus stepping in on our behalf when we couldn't do it on our own. And as we look at this story for what it truly is, it causes us to respond in two ways. For those of you who are Christ followers, you've been forgiven, you've, you've experienced that grace that's changed your life. You've stepped into a relationship with Jesus where he's forgiven you and he leads your life. Our response to this story is to live in gratitude for this amazing gift every single day. 
And that, that, that word is, 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 is not exaggerated. Every day, I believe, as a Christ follower, I should wake up in awe and in, in, in a wonder of what Jesus has offered to me. That the gospel should never grow stale in my heart. That I should wake up every day and every moment be in, in just this magnificent wonder. It, it fills my head as I realize what Jesus paid to give me something. That he pulled me out of the pit of hell and he offers me a future that I could never give myself. And may that never grow stale. But unfortunately, I think it has in many Christians' lives. You see, I think what happens is, what happens to some things in my kitchen, this is copper pot, it's beautiful, it's shiny, it's been taken care of. And I don't know about you, but can you go back to maybe that moment or that season of your life where you finally understood the gospel for what it was and embraced it in your life? Where you recognize what Jesus paid, the ransom he paid for your life, and you stepped into a relationship with him, and it was so good. You tasted for the first time how great and how amazing God is, and it was something that you couldn't get enough of. It was a moment in your life that radically changed everything, and so you, you couldn't get enough of your Bible. It was something that you longed to read, not that you had to read. It was something that was alive. You couldn't shut up about the gospel because you couldn't, it couldn't register in your mind how amazing this gift was that it cost you nothing, and it exploded in your life. You you couldn't shut up about the gospel because you were so excited of how good it was, how great of a gift Jesus offered you. It was shiny and bright. But what happens so often in my life and probably your lives is over the course of following Jesus for maybe six months, a couple years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, however long it's been, something that was so good has changed because we fail to remind ourselves and live in, in gratitude to the gospel, what was shiny and bright has now changed. Where it's dark, rusted, black. And I, I'm afraid this is what happens to many Christians' hearts when we forget how good the gospel is. When we fail to recognize the gift that Jesus gave, that, that we couldn't earn, we could never achieve, we didn't deserve it, but yet he offers it to us freely. And my challenge for us as Christ followers is that I and you would wake up every day not being stale and dull for the gospel, but that it would become alive in our hearts again, that we would wake up every day in thanksgiving in awe and wonder of what Jesus has offered to us and how it's changed us. And may we never shut up about it. May we go crazy about it. May the Bible come alive in our hearts again because we recognize and it registers in our head how amazing and how awesome and how incredible. There's not a word to describe the gospel in our English language. That's how good it is. May we remember that. But yet I recognize even right now that there are some of you right now listening that you've never experienced that grace. You never experienced the mercy of God that's poured over your life that changes it. And I would challenge you today to accept this gift for the very first time. Maybe too, you've been, you've been coming to church for, I don't know, a couple weeks, six months, a couple years. And you came with all your skepticism. You came with your walls up, your guard ready, because you weren't ready for religion. You weren't ready for this whole Jesus thing. You had your doubts and your, your concerns, but what you've realized over the course of your life and listening to God's word be, be taught is you, you, you've realized that, man, you can run from God, but you can never get away from God. 
You can try to rebel against him and it won't stop him from pursuing you, chasing you down and loving you. And maybe today, instead of trying to get away from God, maybe you step into a relationship with a God who will change your life forever. And you'll experience a grace that will cover every sin and every flaw in your life. And why not do that? Why not crash your walls down and and believe in what Jesus accomplished for you, that he died in your place, and that he wants to offer you a future that no person, no relationship, no drug can give you. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. So if you just bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're a Christ follower here today, maybe instead of rolling your eyes and being like, oh, here we go, the gospel again, maybe today you live in gratitude for what you've experienced already in your life, Christ's grace, and you pray for those right now who are are, are hanging on the balance, who are choosing to say yes to Jesus or not. Do you realize there's a spiritual battle happening right now where the enemy doesn't want someone to cross that line, but God is drawing them to himself, and we as Christians, we can fight in that battle. We can pray for those people right now who are deciding whether to do it or not. And maybe that's you. You know it because your heart is racing right now. You can, you can feel it. Maybe you feel like I'm, I'm speaking directly to you. I'll tell you, that's not me. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself. And you're ready. You're ready to drop all your walls. You're ready to experience the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And I'll tell you, all you have to do is just really say these words from your heart, God, I'm a sinner. God, I recognize that my sin has separated, alienated me from you, and I can't fix that problem. But you already did. You did it through Jesus and his death on that cross that conquered my sin, and through raising him from the dead on the third day, you gave me the victory over my sin. And so today, God, I'm asking you to come into my life. I'm turning from my sin, just like that younger brother. I'm I'm turning away from it. I'm coming home, God, and I want you to forgive me, and I want you to lead my life. Let your grace pour over me and change me from the inside out. And if you said that prayer, man, would you just please let us know simple way to do that is just to go to iwant.info. Easy website. You'll see a big banner up there up front. It says, I said yes to Jesus Christ. You click that banner and you fill out that information. We want to surround you with love, with people, with guidance. We want to send you a Bible. And I tell you, if that form comes in today and I see a name, I believe someone's going to cross the line. I believe heaven's rejoicing right now over what happens in the first two services, but I believe he's rejoicing right now over someone crossing that line. So fill out that information. I want to know who you are. I promise. I will party for you today in my own home. I will dance and I will sing and I will celebrate. And I promise you, this church will do the same thing because we're excited about you stepping into a relationship with God because it's the very thing that changed us. So let us know. Fill out that information. It's a simple step. We want to know. For those of us as Christians today, may we never lose sight of how good the gospel is. Will you pray with me? God, I know in my own life, it's so easy and the busyness and the chaoticness of life to just grow stale to the most important thing that life has to offer me, and that's you. And God, forgive me for the days where I lose sight of how important your gospel is, where it goes stale in my heart. May it become alive. May it burst. May I never shut up about your gospel. May I never stop telling people about the thing that's changed my life. 
And God, help us as Christians to, to always be that bright, shiny copper that we can't get enough of you, God. We, we can't stop reading your word, not because we have to, not because it's a checkbox, but because it's so good. And God, I pray for that person who's crossed the line of faith, said yes to you for the very first time. I pray that you surround them with love, that you'd wrap your arms around them, you'd bring people in their life to point them to who you are and how to follow you every day of their life. In Jesus' name. Amen.